My assignment for this weekend comes from Matthew chapter number 26, Matthew chapter number 26, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 27. The scripture says, and those, and, and those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. But Peter followed him from a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and he said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face. They beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? Today, as we continue in our series, defying the urge to quit, I want to talk to you about exactly that when life is not fair. Defying the urge to quit when life is not fair. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak powerfully and poignantly to every single heart, every single heart assembled here, every single heart that's watching at home, every heart at all of our campuses, we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would minister by your grace and your power in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. We all know that life can be unfair. You lose a loved one far too young, that's unfair. You get passed over for a job that you are well qualified for and somebody who's not as qualified gets selected. That's unfair. Your spouse leaves you. That's unfair. Leaves you when you have young kids. That's even more unfair. You get treated in an inferior way because of the color of your skin. That's unfair. Your parents split up when you're a kid and you become estranged from either mom or dad or both and you have to figure it out yourself because you don't have those role models. That's unfair. You get abused as a child, and your innocence gets taken from you. That's unfair. We can go on and on. I think no one would debate the fact that life can and often is unfair. And by the way, God has a counterbalance to life being unfair. And it's not my subject, but it is called his favor. And I want you to know that God's favor or God's goodness wants to show up in your life for no reason without regard to your status, skin color, situation, and circumstance and counterbalance and counteract and overshadow the unfairness that life has dished out to you. His favor is available for every child of God when you make Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of your life, you enter into a place to receive the favor of God. Matter of fact, Jesus came, he said, to bring in, to usher in a time of perpetual favor. Real quick, listen to this. Luke chapter 4, verse number 17. Jesus grabbed the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. 
And that's what was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue looked toward him intently, and he began to speak, and he said, the scripture you just heard was fulfilled this day. When Jesus came, he came to cause us to enter into a time of perpetual favor, and the favor of God is to be released into our life to counteract and overcome all of the unfair things that happen in life, and God's favor is bigger and better and stronger than anything that's unfair in life. And he wants you to have it. But how do we overcome the situations in life and the urge to quit when life is unfair? Well, we're waiting on God's favor to be seen in our lives. Well, Jesus is our example. He's always been our example and he is our our example of what it's like to crash through quitting points and especially things that are unfair. As we come to the text, you'll recall from prior weeks that he has just crashed through the quitting point of Gethsemane, where it was so stressful, so, so, so hard that he actually sweat drops of blood. And when he comes out of Gethsemane, remember, he emerged through the power of prayer because prayer gives us the power to emerge from circumstances that should hold us down. If we'll pray through, we'll get through. Amen. And he comes out of that circumstance, and no sooner does he overcome that, he is met with another quitting point, the betrayal of a close friend who intentionally pre-plans his betrayal and betrays him with a kiss. That's another quitting point. And this quitting point is hard for Jesus. It's not easy for Jesus. But Jesus has determined that he is not going to let anything stop him. He is going to fulfill the mission that God has placed before him. And here's a word for somebody. Don't you you dare quit. Keep on pressing on. Jesus is going to press on. And as Jesus is pressing through these quitting points, he is met with another set of circumstances that is the epitome of unfair. As we come to our text, Matthew chapter number 26, we find it hint at the unfairness Jesus began to experience. It says at the same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, little, little, little prearranged meeting at Caiaphas, the high priest's house, and they were plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. Who was Caiaphas? He was the high priest of Israel. He yielded so much power and influence that after his term was up and he was removed from office, he held on to his power by passing it on to five of his sons. And this particular family became a monarchy, if you will, over this office which yielded so much power. Matter of fact, Caiaphas married Anna, who was the daughter of Anas, and Anas was the high priest before Caiaphas was, and Anas really was the de facto high priest. Matter of fact, when they first captured Jesus, before they brought him to Caiaphas, they brought him to Anas because that's who they really looked up to, and then over to Caiaphas, and this family was crooked. It held on to power, and they were seeking to get Jesus, not by a preponderance of the law or the scriptures, but by plotting 
nothing against him. Matter of fact, before Jesus showed up, they decided that they were going to get Jesus. And the reason why they wanted to get Jesus is because both Caiaphas and Anas were members of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. And how many of you know Jesus is a supernatural machine? Matter of fact, the scripture says if all of the miracles that Jesus did were written down in the books, the worlds could not contain the volumes thereof. How many of you are grateful that we serve a supernatural God? He's a machine when it comes to miracles. And so they hated Jesus because of this. Jesus was threatening their belief system. You want to get people mad? Threaten their belief system. Mess with holy idols in people's lives and begin to pull those things down in those sacred cows. People get mad. And then if you really want to get them mad, mess with their power. And they were concerned that Jesus was going to become the new leader, the new religious leader, the new spiritual leader. And so what really tipped them over the top was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, they went on tilt and they said, we got to kill him now. If everybody sees that this guy that was dead is now living again, they're going to go to him as their leader spiritually. He's going to get all our power. And when you threaten people's belief system and power, guess what they do? They want to fight back. And so they are plotting against Jesus. And I want you to notice that as they are plotting against him, they're looking for false witnesses. They don't care how they get Jesus. Look at it with me. Matthew chapter number 26. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all of the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They weren't looking for truth. They were just looking to trump up charges and stick them on Jesus. And so, matter of fact, they had determined, finally, they accused him. His crime was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews, that he, that he claimed to be God. And so they're now sending him off to Pilate because they need Pilate's permission in order to kill Jesus. But before they send him off to Pilate, they treat Jesus unfairly. What do they do to Jesus? Notice verse 20, chapter 26, verse 67. Then, before they send him off to Pilate, they spit in his face. They beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? Now, we miss what's going on here. And we think, well, one person walked up to Jesus and from kind of far away spat on him. But literally, this group of chief priests and members of the council were 100 men, minimally. And they got right up in Jesus' grill, one after the other, like this close, and they spit right in his face. And then the next one came spat right in his face. And then the next one. And by the time they were done spitting in Jesus' face, the spit was dripping all down his face and onto his clothes. This was the height of saying to somebody, I cannot stand you. And if that wasn't unfair enough, the next thing they do according to the text is it says they beat him. And this is not just punching him, but this is punching him and punching him and punching him and punching him. Matter of fact, the Bible says that by the time Jesus got to the cross, his visage was so marred that he was unrecognizable. You talk about unfair, but not only were they satisfied with just beating him and spitting his face, but notice the next thing it says, they take an open hand, they slap him with the palm of, his, of their hands. And I don't know if back in the day, 
if you knew you could really just destroy somebody in a fight, rather than bother with them, you'd just slap them and just say, yeah, I'm going to bother with you. It's kind of like the insult to say, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And here they come, open hands and slap Jesus. Not one time, a hundred men, one after another, after another. This is unfair. But then the height of unfairness, as if that wasn't enough, is the Bible said they begin to mock him. And Luke's gospel actually uses a word where we get the English word charades from. Has anybody ever played charades? You act something out, right? And somebody's got to guess what you're doing. So what they did was they put a blindfold on Jesus. And what they did is they began to act out in front of him, perhaps because these were people that hated the supernatural, all of the miracles that Jesus did. Maybe they acted out raising dead people to life again. Maybe they acted out seeing people who couldn't walk healed and, and begin to walk. Maybe they, they acted out people who couldn't hear all of a sudden hearing. Maybe they acted out lepers uh, getting all of their leprosy removed from them and they begin to act this out and mock Jesus and as they were doing it they'd slap him from all different sides and who was it that slapped you you want to talk about unfair imagine how many opportunities we haven't even got to the cross yet imagine how many opportunities Jesus had to quit because life was unfair to Jesus he probably wanted to quit when they plotted to pin a crime against him that he was innocent of. He probably wanted to quit as the first person spit in his face. I don't know about you, but what kind of strength does it take to know you have the power to wipe them all out, to sit there and take it? He probably wanted to quit. That urge to quit was rising up. As they beat him, he wanted to quit. As they mocked him, he wanted to quit. As they did all, how unfair. How did Jesus do it? I want to give you just two keys, two keys today. How do I defy the urge to quit when life is unfair? Notice the text again, and I want to go to when Jesus is now before Pilate. So they do all this to him. They've treated him unfairly. Now they ship him off to Pilate, and they want Pilate to put his blessing on the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. I want you to notice the very first thing. Here's the first key. How do I defy the urge to quit when life is unfair? Notice Jesus was watching what he said. When life is unfair, isn't it easy? To just let a whole bunch of stuff come out of your mouth. When life is not working the way that we expect, we want it to, or that's even fair, sometimes what happens is our mouth becomes unhinged. But Jesus is very intentionally choosing his words. They ask him a direct question. Are you king of the Jews? He doesn't answer directly. He says, it's as you say. And then he listens to how everybody is testifying against him. And the Bible says he answered not a word. David said it like this. He said, set a guard, O Lord. Psalm 141, verse number three. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Friends, I can't tell you how important it is when life is unfair to watch what comes out of your mouth. Why? The scripture says in Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Death and life 
are not in the power of the fists. Fists are not where the battle is won. The mouth is where the battle is either won or lost. And the enemy knows this. And the enemy is trying to get hold of our mouth, especially when life is unfair, because he's already got us on the ropes when life is unfair. When life is unfair, he's already playing with our mind. There's already anxiety. There's already fear. There's all of these things that we got to fight. And if he could just get us to give us our, our lips, our words, our mouth, then he could do what he wants to do. But Jesus would not let the enemy get a foothold. You see, what happens is... When we speak, when life is unfair, we are either steered into more unfairness or steered into God's favor. Matter of fact, when we speak, when life is unfair, we either either fire up the unfairness or we fire up the favor. By what comes out of our mouth? James tells us this, doesn't he? James chapter 3, verse number 3. Listen carefully. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, watch this, and is set on fire by hell. How many has ever, let's just be honest, life is unfair, and what do you do? You, you give in to that urge that just comes over you to tell them what you want to tell them, to make sure they understand how you feel, to get it out. I mean, it's just a moment. We're all human after all, and we just, we vomit all over the place. And by so, so doing, we're either firing up more unfairness. We're either steering toward more unfairness or either steering away from the unfairness and into the favor of God or firing up the favor of God. Don't lose control of what you say when life is unfair. Do like David did. Pray this prayer. Lord, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Watch this. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Did you know that your lips are doors? I love this. Think about it. Your lips are doors. It's either a door that you open for the devil or a door that you open for the favor of God to show up in your life. Don't let what you say steer you further into the unfair. Let your words steer you into God's favor. Let it be a door that God can walk into your life with instead of an open door that the enemy can take advantage of you in. Realize that your words are doors. Jesus was not going to give the enemy a door to walk through. And so he put a watch over his words. And the enemy was pushing Jesus, wasn't he? He was pushing Jesus to call on the 12 legions of angels that Jesus said to Peter, I can call on my father right now. Put away your sword. He can give me 12 legions of angels. Remember we talked about how much power that is? 13 billion, 320 million worth of deadly power in 12 legions of angels. He said he's, he was pushing them. Go ahead and call on those legions. He was pushing them when he spit in his face. He was pushing them when he beat them. He was pushing them when they slapped him. He was pushing them when they played charades. Why? To call on his, on his deliverance. Because if Jesus called on his deliverance, 
you and I would be doomed. The plan of the enemy would then usurp the plan of God. And it was all in what Jesus would say. And so Jesus said nothing. What do you do? Well, Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. At all times. Not just good times. But all the time I bless the Lord. And especially when life is unfair, I bless the Lord. Because when I bless the Lord, when life is burdening me, when I bless the Lord, when life is unfair, what I'm doing is I'm summoning the favor of God to come into my life and counteract all of the unfairness. And by the way, if you don't think that this is serious business to God, when we are introduced to God in the book of Genesis, think about this. Of all the ways God can introduce himself to us, one of the very first thing he tells us, I'm a speaking God. The whole first chapter of Genesis, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. In other words, he introduces us and tells us that he uses his words to create the world that he wants. Just like God uses his words to create the world that he wants, our words will create the world that you and I live in. And I'm not talking about the world as in like outside, you know, the whole universe. I'm talking about your world, your your little section of real estate. What you experience in your life is created by what we say. And then after introducing himself to us in Genesis as a speaking God, when he's ready to show up on the earth in the flesh, the very first thing he says about himself in the beginning was the word. And the word was God, was with God. And the word was God. All things were created by him and there's not anything that was created that wasn't created by him. Think about this. He defines himself as the word. If what comes out of our mouths is not important, why would God introduce himself to us as the God that speaks and then says, listen, I define myself by what comes out of my mouth. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, he says this, I've exalted my word even above my name. Watch what you say. Speak life when circumstances are unfair. Don't let your mouth get unhinged from your brain. Has that ever happened to anybody? Any married people can say, yeah, it happens to me all the time. She really gets on my nerves. And then all of a sudden, no, listen, it's at times like that. God, put a watch over my words. God, help me to keep the door closed to the enemy and open to the favor of God. But pastor, how, how, how do we do this? How, 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 how come Jesus didn't speak out his deliverance. Well, I want you to watch this. Number two, and lastly for today, just two things. If you are going to defy the urge to quit when life is unfair, you have to release the weight of outcomes. Anybody ever been burdened by an outcome? Fretting about it? Up late at night? Trying to figure, how's it going to work out? Man, I sure hope it works out this way. Can't get any sleep. Anxiety taking you. Burdened by the outcome. Listen carefully to what I'm about to teach you because I'm about to teach you something that is theologically important to understand in the right context. Let me say it first and then I'll explain it. We don't control outcomes. Let me say it again. We don't control 
outcomes. I want you to notice again our text, Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, It's as you say. I want you to notice he's choosing his words very carefully. This is the second time that he refuses to refute the charges that are being levied against him. The first time was before Caiaphas. We read that before. This is the second time. And then if we read further down, there is a third time where Pilate basically says, don't you hear what everybody is saying? And the scripture says, when Jesus refused to answer, Pilate marveled. Let's look at it. Matthew 27, verse 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Why did Pilate marvel greatly that Jesus would not defend himself? Well, in Bible times, an accused person was given three times to refute the evidence that was against him. If they refused to answer, they were automatically pronounced guilty. And so Pilate is giving him these three times. All Jesus needs to do is defend himself. How come Jesus kept silent? Because he's trying to teach us something. We don't control the outcome. He was trying to teach us, put the outcome in God's hands. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Isaiah 43, verse number 16. Thus says the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse. Now I'm reading the King James because I like the way the last line, whoa, I like the way the last line, that was power right there. See, I like the way the last line reads, but in almost every other translation it says, who makes a way in the sea and who makes a path in the mighty waters. Who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power? They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Watch this, watch this. Behold, I will do a new thing. It shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Here's my question for you. Who makes a way in the wilderness? Who, who makes rivers in the desert? Who is the way maker? Who's in charge of the outcome? God is, right? He's the way maker. He's the one who makes a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be your guide. Hold you closely by his side with love and grace for each new day. He will make a way. God is the one who makes the way. We don't control outcomes. But yet what do we try to do? We try to manipulate outcomes. We try to politic for outcomes. We try to deceive for outcomes. Jesus taught us something very powerful. The last words of Jesus, wouldn't you say they're, they're pretty important? Like last words, that, on your deathbed, you know, here's your, your, your father who's filled with wisdom. And he grabs the whole family around and he wants to share a few words before he leaves. Well, here's our Savior. He wants to share a few words before he leaves. On the cross, he shares seven sayings. We all have heard this before. But the very last thing he says, Luke chapter 23, verse number 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Having said this, he breathed his last breath. What's he saying? He's saying we don't control outcomes. What's he saying? He's saying put the outcomes in the hands of God. I came here to remind somebody today that the outcome is not in your hands. The outcome is in God's hands. It's in God's hands. That ought to get you excited. That ought to get you fired up. Now listen, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean que sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. It doesn't mean that, that you sit back and you do nothing. Here's what it means. It means that you cooperate with God. It means that you do what God has asked you to do, like putting a watch over your mouth and then resting in the fact that after you've cooperated with God, the outcome's in his hands. After you've cooperated with God, you trust that God's got it. You trust that there's nothing too difficult for him. You trust that he's got the best for you in mind. You trust that if his eye is on the sparrow, he's watching over you. You trust that the safest place in the world to be is in the hands of God. You release the weight of the outcome into the one who cares for you more than you care for yourself cared for you so much he allowed him to spit in his face cared for you so much that he allowed him to beat him slap him allowed him to mock him allowed charges to be trumped against him you say god it's in your hands and god i'm glad it's in your hands i'm glad it's in your hands you know why you ought to be glad it's in god's hands because you're limited but God's unlimited. You know why you ought to be glad it's in God's hands? Because there are things that are too difficult for you. But thank God nothing is too difficult for God. You ought to be glad because when you put it in the hands of God, you put it in the hands that reached out and healed blind eyes. And you put it in the hands of him who reached out and unstopped deaf ears. You put it in the hands of him who removed leprosy from people's lives, who touched loaves and fishes and turned them into a feast for 5,000. The safest place for you to put your outcome is in the hand of Almighty God. You don't control the outcome. God controls the outcome. The outcome's in His hands. And that don't get you fired up. It's in His hands. I believe God is speaking to a bunch of people right now. How much sleep have you lost because you forgot us in his hands. How, how much anxiety and fear have you gone through? Because you took the burden on you. You said, I got to fix this. You said, I, I've got I've to do something. And God said, no, just cooperate with me. Here's the book. I don't have the Bible. Here, here's the book. What it says in here, do it. I love what Mary told all the people at the wedding feast of Cana. Do you remember what she said? There was, they ran out of wine. That was embarrassment at a wedding. And they said, what are we going to do? Mary said like this, whatever he says do, do it. I mean, that's good wisdom, isn't it? Listen here, I'll tell you how to be set free in a moment. I'll tell you how to, how to get, a, get to a place of rest instead of frustration. Whatever he says do, do it. Put it in, that's how you put it in his hands. That's how you say, God, it's your problem and not my problem. God wants to take control of the situation. You gotta put it in his hands. Would you stand?